Welcome to By the Sword, where we discuss the modern study of historical European martial arts, or HEMA, with instructors, experts and martial artists from all over the world. In this episode, we talk to HEMA instructor, SCA fencer, lecturer, historian and TV presenter Lynette Nussbacher, who teaches at the School of the Sword, Godalming, UK. This episode was recorded on Instagram Live, 23rd of April, 2020. Hi, how are you? I'm great, thanks. How are you doing? Good, yes. I'm good. Yeah, it feels like, um, because as we know, we are um, friends and colleagues at the School of the Sword, and it's been, yeah, a month, I think a month since we've hung out and uh, done HEMA stuff together, so, but it feels um, like a really long time, so um, how's your lockdown been so far? It's been very busy, I'm very busy with work, Um, my clients are being very demanding right now, and I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, the uncertainty in their futures. That's right. And uh, so happy to, to, you know, help guide them. Mm-hmm. Happy to be working. I know so many yeah. people haven't got that privilege right now. Yeah, it is a, it is a real blessing to be able to work. Um, now, my first thing I was going to say to you was, um, you've had a, like you said, you've got a lot of you're busy at the moment you with your uh day job as a uh it's an interesting one it's uh what is it it's a devil's advocate isn't it that that is a title i've had for a year <laughs> uh, i brought from my uh my time in government where i discovered that the person who did my job in american defense intelligence was called the devil's advocate and i said i, I want that, job. that title <laughs> yeah. that's all we need to do give people fancy titles and it sounds um, way better than strategy consultant. It does. Sounds- <laughs> so you've had a very varied um, career and like, mm-hmm. uh, as I just said, your, your day job um, kind of like um, merges with swords in a lot of ways. Like you, you I mean, you worked in the, as a historian uh, in the military um, and swords have been a part of your life for a very long time. Um, I had my my hemiversary on Friday, but I think your connection to swordplay goes back a lot further than that. So could you want to just enlighten us about how you got involved in the, wow. this crazy adventure? Um, I authorized in SCA armored combat. So <laughs> with fighting with the Rattan Baton in um, 1984. And I did that for about 10 years. And I was part of a, a movement of people in and around the SCA at the time, who started to think about um, doing more historical uh, modes of combat. We started to do more research. Mm-hmm. And I was really fortunate at the time to uh, to get together with uh, a few of my friends. And one of them was a guy called Jeff Forgang, mm-hmm. who is uh, really well known as the, the editor and redactor who first gave us uh, 133, Mm-hmm. and who has, has released that splendid edition of Meyer. Yeah. Really <clears throat> brilliant all-round editor. And we uh, picked up um, Turner and Soper's Three Elizabethan Fencing Manuals, uh, and we particularly liked Degrassi because Degrassi was simple and straightforward. Mm-hmm. We all workshopped and taught each other Degrassi in, uh, in about 1991. We started doing it, and for uh, for a few years, ninety one to about ninety four, we uh, we experimented. We we didn't use fencing masks because they were. So was far this too in wide. was this in the USA or was this in Canada? It was in Canada. In, in Canada, because you're from New York originally, is that right? I was born in New York City. Yeah, yeah. Boris Johnson and I were, were both very very, <laughs> very New Yorker. <laughs> Sorry. Yes, yeah, so you were at SCA um, Canada unraveling Elizabethan um, manuscripts with your with your pals and yeah. um, and then uh, 
I think it's relatively recently you got into HEMA itself. And how did you come across that? Well, of course, we were all inventing HEMA back in the early 90s. Yeah. It just wasn't called that yet. Yeah, um, it just didn't have a name. <laughs> yeah. And um, when, I started, when I started doing postgraduate study in history, doing history for fun was no longer fun. And so I pulled back from reenactment and from the SCA and from fencing. And I spent a lot of time and put a lot of focus into, um, uh, into studying history and, and doing history for a living. And I did that for, uh, for about 15 years. Wow. And, uh, but in the, um, uh, uh, in uh, 2014, I decided that I really needed to get more active and I, I decided I had two choices. I could either start doing roller derby or I could get back into fencing. Wow. So They're we both saved, something yeah. violent and <laughs> interesting. So I wasn't going to start playing netball, you know? Because I, I know yeah. a few people who've fallen, not fallen, I wouldn't say fallen, but maybe falling is the right word, from roller derby into HEMA. Uh, but you were about to go the other way. So we were snatched from the jaws of roller derby by, by what? Uh, well, I just decided that if I had to make a choice between spending a lot of money on skates and spending a lot of money on swords, I was going to spend a lot of money on swords. No, I, I went back to fencing because my roots were in fencing. Um, my dad is very proud of me and, and my daughter, Abby, because he was a fencer. Uh, and he's very pleased that we, uh, we have picked up the family tradition. And, um, and really, um, nothing is cooler than swords. No, although it has been suggested here in the comments that we need to invent a new sport involving blades and wheels. So maybe that's something to be explored. Roller derby fencing, a new activity that begs to be invented. So that, that might be worth exploring. It might be worth workshopping. Um, so you, um, a lot of people will know you from TV. Um, mm. you've been uh, a very familiar face on the History Channel um, and uh, Time Commanders shows like that as the resident expert um, so what um, I, w I just want to know I mean this could be a bit tricky of a question and an answer and I know like in TV like that things don't always come to light. They're not always they, there's there's things that are proposed that never actually see the light of day. What's the weirdest pitch that you've uh, ever been uh, suggested to go along with, or had to turn down, maybe? Well, so we made Time Commanders starting in uh, 2003, and the pitch for that, I mean, it, it was it was the producers came to, to uh, a bunch of us at Sandhurst because they figured Sandhurst, a military academy, they must know about wargaming, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, was not a great assumption. Not, the, not. <laughs> okay. Um, but we, we had a really long lunch uh, in the officer's mess at Sandhurst and we drank a lot of cups of tea and we talked a lot about the idea and I'll tell you what the idea was. And not everybody has seen this TV show, especially people who aren't in the UK. Mm -hmm. But the idea was a lot of people like watching other people play war games on yeah. computers. Yeah, people make yeah. entire careers out of it now. Mm, that's right, which, which, which boggles my mind. But that's yeah, fine. me too. I don't get it either. But, <laughs> but the idea was, let's create a television show where people will um, be educated by watching other people play war games. Right. And that was a pretty weird concept. And we developed the idea. We developed the idea of forcing people to talk to each other while they're playing war games. Forcing nerds uh, to talk to each other. Even harder. Well, yeah, actually. And one of the other <laughs> things we did early on in the series was we had people who didn't know anything about war games or military history because we wanted to really see people learning, what, uh, learning by doing, uh -huh. struggling to work together, really having to talk out ideas. So that was, listen, most of what I do on television is straightforward talking head stuff. Yeah. Right? Where, where I am corralled in uh, a dungeon or a library and they put a camera in front of me and, and ask me a lot of questions and I explain stuff. And that's great. 
Yeah. But the idea of um, effectively being Waldorf and Statler <laughs> for a video game version of The Muppet Show. It is exactly was, that. It is. It was great. And it was Time Commanders, the, the last season that you recorded was, uh, I think, what in common parts is known as meme-worthy. There were a lot of um, lines <laughs> that came out of that, um, which were, you know, just... Um, completely, um, you just couldn't predict the sort of things that were that were coming out of that show. Um, any special memories from that last series for you? One thing is really significant, actually, which is that when we made the first two series uh, in 2003-2005, the BBC was utterly uninterested in any social media or web connections at all. Right. There was no website for the show. There was no interest in, um, I mean, social media wasn't huge back then, but it did exist. Yeah. No interest whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And and as you observe, when we did the show again in 2016, there were dedicated social media people creating memes in real time and firing, out, firing them out the door, which was mm -hmm. really cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and real time, you know, when we did the first couple of series, I'd go out afterwards to get uh, to get a loaf of bread, and the people in the corner shop would tell me what they thought of the, of the show. <laughs> and in 2016, I had real-time criticism. I knew exactly what I'd done wrong. I knew exactly how awkward I looked, and exactly uh, what I should have said and didn't say. Everyone's and, an expert, uh, eh? Everyone's an expert. So cool. it, was, it was very different. Very different. Do you, is uh, people are probably dying to know this? Is there going to be another series? Well, if you'd asked me any time before twenty sixteen whether whether there'd be another series, I would have said uh, very unlikely. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I don't think it's especially likely. I think it's a, kind of a niche product. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there are some people who are quite senior in the BBC now, who were junior and. Uh, uh, so it's probably high time for a revival. Well, yeah. And, mm -hmm. and these senior people cut their teeth on time commanders in the old days. So mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's really what's going to possibly propel us towards another series. But really, we're, we're kind of niche. Yeah. Um, this varied career of yours and your multiple pursuits. Um, I mean... As you and I know, our, our, our totem... Um, Daddy at Sots is 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 the our father Fabris. Is that um? Was he? Is that why you're inspired to follow his teachings? Do you think? Was he a natural fit for you? Absolutely not. There is nothing natural about Sally Fabris. <laughs> Big Sally Fabris puts you in an unnatural position. <laughs> As you do something thoroughly unnatural, which is protect yourself by putting your head as close as possible to the enemy, but yeah. your, body, your body as far as possible. There's nothing natural about Fabris. Yeah. I love Fabris because... Gravity is just a concept, right? Well, he's not, he's not a conceptual fencer, though, is he? No. He is somebody who tells you uh, everything that you want to know um, about achieving advantage over your opponent. He's very, um, very didactic, very thorough. And um, compared to someone like, for instance, Saviola, really understandable. Mm -hmm. But he, he like, yeah, he explains uh, really uh, weird things. He shows very odd things, but he explains it in a very pragmatic way. And it's that, <laughs> it, it's, it's, um, reconciling that what you see on the page and what you and the written word is uh is is the challenge i think um have we had anyone drop any questions in just now because if not i have a few here that i have been sent thank you uh you always have cute the cutest glasses thank you <laughs> um these are actually a bit too big and they're sliding off my face uh martin says hi hi Right, nobody's actually asking anything yet, but I have some questions here from Yasin, who is watching now. Um, its first question is, your favourite manual as a primary source and why? And I think we've just given a spoiler about that. So, favourite manual's a tough one. I'm, I'm very much a, a devotee of Fabris. Uh, and Salvatore Fabris, who, who 
publishes in the early 17th century, but taught in the 16th century, is, um, is a guy who I consider the, my inspiration. And when I want to switch on and win a fight, instead mm. of just have a good time with a blade, <laughs> I really have to put myself into Fabris's uh, way of thinking, way of moving. So he's really important to me that way. But okay. I think that the fact that I started fencing with Degrassi was also important. When I first picked up a sword um, for, for uh, historical combat, for fencing, um, we read Saviolo, we read Silver, we read Degrassi, and we said Degrassi is simple, and he's musical, and he's Ooh. rhythmic. And learning to fence with Degrassi is learning rapier or side sword, depending on what you view him as, as teaching. It's learning a musical approach and a rhythmic approach that makes it really accessible to the newcomer. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's important for people to learn um, Fabris early in their fencing careers and not to think that Fabris is some kind of outlier because he's yeah. not. But Degrassi is a really nice way in. So Degrassi is your like entry level and Fabris is your aspirational, would you say? Um, I think that somebody who wants to be a really good rapier fencer should come in and learn Fabris. Uh -huh. But someone who wants an introduction to interpreting primary source material, and I guess that was the question there, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah, it was. To, the pri to primary source material could do really well to pick up the very spare, very logical, um, and the not too tough to understand Degrassi. Mm -hmm. And because we have a 16th century translation of Degrassi into English, you can pick up Degrassi and, uh, and fight with the original material yourself without the mediation of a translator, if you're an English speaker or because, if you're a modern Italian speaker. Because there was a contemporary translation in mm. existence. Yeah. Uh, we've got a, a nukes just dropped in a question, if you can see that at the bottom of the screen. What is it about the rapier that makes you feel drawn to it? Because it is aesthetically pleasing? Do you mm. like the tactics behind rapier? Why rapier? Why not the sabre, I think she's trying to say. <sighs> well, Okay, why not saber is easy? Saber is a brutish weapon for brutish people. Uh, I, These are um, not my opinions. <laughs> when I got involved as uh, when I got involved in Hema after years without picking up a sword, the first thing I did was decide that what I wanted to do was fight longsword. Yes, I remember that. Mm -hmm. And I got myself a really nice longsword, and then another really nice longsword. And I spent a lot of time, I, I studied with the, uh, the Wolf's Head um, Martial Arts um, uh, Hammer Club in, uh, in Lincoln. Oh, yeah. Uh, really cracking bunch of guys, very focused. And, mm -hmm. and Fox, who was leading the group, certainly at the time, was a, was a good teacher. And I spent a lot of time in the Lincoln Arboretum, because I was working in Lincoln at the time. Uh, going through a lot of movements out of uh, Lichtenauer uh, and, and especially, of course, using Ringek as a source. And, and then I went and joined a club that doesn't do rapier. I joined School of the Sword. Doesn't Sorry, do long sword. Do sword. That doesn't do long sword. We do now. <laughs> Which we do now. Yes, we do all the things as long as they're Italian. Yeah. So, so I, I, um, I picked up a, uh, a rapier, although we did, we did a lot of what I'd call side sword at the time, mm -hmm. uh, and we did um, we did a lot of really good chunky basics. And once I realized that there is a world of um, gorgeous swords and beautiful movement, and once I got back into my roots, my roots were as I say in Degrassi, but once I got back into that. I found the the precision and the analytical nature of rapier to be every bit as attractive as longsword. So I'm I'm useless with a longsword. I pick one up a couple times a year. I'd love to develop my longsword further, but rapier is in its own way every bit as gorgeous as longsword. Uh -huh. Now, why not saber? Um, I'm happy to pick up a saber, but I, uh, there's one thing about saber that's significant. Two things. One is saber is 
to my mind, a cavalry weapon. Mm -hmm. yes. Standing on the ground using a saber is not as aesthetically pleasing to me as using a, uh, a weapon meant to be used on foot. Um, on a horseback. Um, no, I'm getting muddling myself up, sure. Um, <laughs> I mean, I have a saber. I have my, my British Army saber uh, from my time as an army officer. And it is a saber designed to be used on foot. Right. And it is straight, not curved. Mm -hmm. It is light, not heavy. Mm. It, it is, in fact, in many ways, a side sword. Yes. And uh, so I'm not attracted to the idea of saber the way I am to rapier or longsword. And, uh, and yet, I know in School of the Sword, we're planning on doing some uh, saber work. Up, up Italian saber. Italian saber. <laughs> I'm very happy with the idea of getting myself... Uh, 19th century Italian saber is acceptable. I'll get, I'll get a nice light saber and I'll learn a little bit of saber. I think Mikawai is selling some, so... Indeed. Oh. Uh, so I've got more questions here, unless anyone's dropped any live. Um... Spadroon rules. Yeah, I can. I, I'll get on that. I'll get on that boat. Um, another one from Yasin. Uh, recommendations on peripheral readings regarding martial culture in the context in which fight books were developed. I know you've lectured on this um, a couple of times at HEMA events as well. Yeah. So here's... Um... When we say fight books, I'm assuming we don't only mean uh, German. No, we don't mean just KDF. I think it just means any uh, any fencing manual. What there's a recommended sort of reading for learning about how well the context of, in which these books were written. I guess there's we can just stick with our main focus of what we were just talking about: Italian rapier, yeah, side sword. So let me. I, I would. I would. If I, if I rush upstairs holding my mobile device, you'll, you'll all get motion sick. So I'm not going to do that okay. uh, and, and get the book. But there's a book, and I'll, I'm just going to look up the author, called Elizabethan's Errant. And it is Elizabethan's about, Errant. Hmm, and it's about, a, um, about young, well-to-do Elizabethan men who are um, going around Europe and having a good time and being youthful and, and it's very well documented and it is um it's a way of understanding the culture that surrounds um uh the rapier as a cultural phenomenon so that's and that's really important dw davis yeah davis D-A-V-I-E-S, mm -hmm. 1967. 1967, okay. So have a look at Elizabethan's errant, and I think that's really important. Okay. Um, he also asks, what were you, what are, can you um, tell us about any favorite experiences engaging the public with regards to history? I guess that's all of your TV career, basically. <laughs> Well, it is, uh, in, in a kind of a limited way. Mm. So I think, it's, I think that one of the saddest things I hear, and I hear it a lot, is people say to me, if only you had been my teacher in high school, I would have learned so, history so much better. Yeah. Or if only you'd been my teacher at A-level. And the reason they say that is because when we teach people how to teach, and when we select people to teach particular subjects, we we do so in a way that perpetuates old ways of teaching and that teaches, if I can borrow um, a political phrase, it teaches the few, not the many. Right. And people who are taught mathematics in a certain way um, might or might not cotton on to maths. And if we don't teach the teacher how to adapt their material and their teaching skills to a student's needs, then students don't learn a lot. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're right in observing, I do lots of talking head television shows that are meant to teach history. And there are people for whom that is the ideal way to learn history. 
Yeah. And I love that they get a lot out of it. But there are people who need to learn history by picking up a sword and using it in a historical fashion. Mm -hmm. There are people who need to learn history by... Um, my, my old mate, Daryl Markowitz, makes Iron Age iron by doing blooms in the ground and, and smelting ore the way ore was smelted in the Iron Age and, uh, and, and antiquity. And um, learning by smelting. There's a guy in, in, our own, um, in our own club, in School of the Sword, who went mm -hmm. off to Wales and made a Bronze Age bronze weapon. Yeah. That is learning history. And we all learn differently, and it's important for all of us to have the opportunity to learn history and maths and geography and all those things the best way for us. And sometimes the best way to learn is by doing. Absolutely, for a lot of people. And I think for like people in HEMA, that's probably... I mean, playing with swords is fun, but... Uh it's almost like you get hooked on history by accident um, because of the, the pragmatic nature of it. It's a way into history mm -hmm. and it provides a framework for, I mean, lots of people uh, who are um, hemaists are in IT, are in um, uh, the visual arts, are in all sorts of non-book learning um, uh, parts of the economy and parts of the intellectual economy and they come together in HEMA because we learn by doing and because picking up the sword and using the sword is a way in which their IT-oriented brains, maths-oriented brains, um, arts-oriented brains never, you know, never connected with being given a big fat book yeah. and being told read this chapter for Monday and write uh, me an essay. I can relate. <laughs> yeah. I can totally relate. Uh, another question here from Anouk. What is your favorite historical era? Now that's, that's, that's tough. I'll give you two answers. Two, yeah. My favorite, my favorite historical era for work is uh, this, the early modern period in Europe, 16th, uh -huh. 17th century. Uh -huh. uh, I did my doctoral thesis on English Civil War. I'd spent a lot of years studying, studying that, and I think it's great. My favorite time period for fun is the 14th century. And I like the idea of doing um, 14th century clothing and food. And, uh, and it's one of the things that attracted me to doing uh, Lichtenauer and, uh, and Ringek by way of Longsword because it is, it is good solid 14th century stuff. <laughs> Bashing people with longswords. Seriously. Yeah. Um... Right, we've covered favorite weapon. Um, have we got any other questions for Lynette? Anyone? Well, there's more people joining as we go along. Italian sabers need more curves. Chonky basics is the new HEMA term. Ah. <laughs> uh, Two swords and to one sword. Oh, that's the roll. The rollerblades. Uh, yeah, rollerblading, with a new twist. We need to work on that. Um, any questions, anyone? You sort of said the word two swords now, and mm -hmm. um, uh, one of the things that I've been working on recently, as, as as you recall, and that I occasionally drag out of the cupboard, is um, is Dottolini teaching two rapiers. Mm -hmm. And the case of rapiers is, um, is a fascinating approach to fencing. One of the things that we are used to is the idea that fencing is a way of being prepared to fight a duel. It's a way of asserting your social status. It was a way of people, uh, of men asserting their masculinity. It is a, um, a fascinating um, subject because it integrates into that world of the 16th and 17th century. And one of the hard things to understand is how fighting with two rapiers integrates into that world. Mm. Because people, I can, I can understand, I've seen a lot of paintings of noble people with swords at their hips walking through a town. And I can imagine that if somebody came up and bit their thumb at them, 
uh, they would uh, be able to uncork that sword and bring it into play and uh, kill or be killed or, or blood and be blooded. And uh, I have a really hard time imagining somebody striding through the streets of, uh, of uh, you know, Renaissance Genoa with um, a rapier at the hip and and uh, a page running alongside carrying a second oh yeah hey i think that was altoni's advice have your page carry an extra sword yeah and what altoni's doing there is trying to create a justification for something fencing masters really love i think fencing masters really love the idea of case of rapiers and i think that they wanted other people to love it and come to them and trained in it and earn fees training people in that and they tried to create it and um, and they create and, and there's something beautiful about a, a really pure approach to combat that that is probably utterly divorced from reality. <laughs> so yeah, just trying to conjure up situations or just trying to just, just stir in general to try and get people to fence with two rapiers. But I mean, I have to say, if someone asked me that question, what's your favourite weapon or weapon combination? I would have to say a case of rapiers. Because mm. it's just so cool um, it, and unfair. <laughs> well, against an opponent who's only got one, it, it is yeah. brutally unfair, and it's great in melees as a result. Um, and, and in a sense, the, the purest form of rapier is single rapier because it's all about um, feeling the, the, your opponent's steel, seeking advantage, sword on sword, um, and um, you know, nothing brutish like a buckler or... Oh, or it's uh, it's the ultimate dueling weapon, isn't it? It is. It's the essential and, dueling weapon. And in a way, Case of Swords is the opposite. It is, it, mm. is, uh, <laughs> it is the impractical, artistic expression of fencing. It's fun. We have had a couple of um, uh, questions appear while we've been talking. Um... I think. Alex from Godalming. Who is your favorite longsword master? Um, I would say Lichtenauer, except of course, we don't really know Lichtenauer that well. Lichtenauer um, and friends. Lichtenauer and friends. I'd say Sigmund uh, Ringek, because Ringek is able to, presumably, uh, without knowing that Lichtenauer would have left us. Um, so little behind. Ringek is able to communicate to us um, so much about Lichtenauer. And although I have tremendous respect for the Italian tradition of longsword, and I'm really glad that um, I was, that, that Emilia in um, uh, School of the Sword put me on to, to Fiore. Mm. Um, Built sorry, into, you out then. I'm sorry, I like the visceral approach built into the German tradition. I like the um, the uh, the peasant names. I like the descriptive names, and and I like the level of challenge. Uh, mm -hmm. I like you know the, finding that how that that um, that you read about in the book and and producing it is um, is an intellectual and physical challenge, and I like that. So yeah, I would say. Bring it. Okay, uh, another question came in. I saw uh, this is a better version of the Graham Norton show. I agree. Uh, <laughs> from the girl in brocade, aka Joe in Cardiff. If you had a TARDIS, when slash where would you like to visit? Now, this is particularly uh, pertinent, I think, because you've written uh, in the Who universe, have you not? I've I've done the writing. Um... And uh, I think our, we, we, we angered our editor um, by, by enjoying the whooshing sound as deadlines went by. So I don't think we're going <laughs> to... Um, one of the difficulties about being a historian is that you understand everything there is to understand about a period. And one of the things you learn is how absolutely bloody miserable so much of history would have been to, uh, to be there for, right? Yeah. So I, I wrote a book on the Battle of Bannockburn when I was very young. And I researched that battle in the 14th century inside and out. And I wrote about it. Um, and at the e in the end, the last place I'd ever want to be would be 1314 uh, Scotland. Mm -hmm. I've since discovered through 
uh, genetic genealogy that a, a distant ancestor of mine was on the field. Would I have wanted to go and watched my distant ancestor sweating and bleeding and grunting and losing a battle to, uh, to, 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 their, uh, to their enemies? Um, no, I don't think so. Okay. So would I like to use you know, time travel as a tool to understand history? Yeah, I like that idea. Are there questions about history I'd like to resolve by, by you know, having a look from, uh, from a, a, a time travel device? Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> but so, so if you ask me though, um, what moment would I want to experience? And this is, this is utterly unrelated to my professional interest in fencing uh, and in war. And uh, it is that I would have liked to have been in, um, uh, in Tel Aviv in 1947, when the, uh, the Declaration of Independence, sorry, 1948, as it happened, when, when Israel was declared, uh, declared independent. And uh, when they read out the Declaration of Independence, it is a... Sorry, you've cut out there. Hoping you can reconnect. So we can get you back. Oh, there we are. Sorry. So you, we, we cut out at the point where you said the Declaration of Independence, 1948, Tel Aviv. In Tel Aviv. Uh, it's a, a time of... Uh, tremendous distress for so many people, a time of so much joy for so many people, and um, a moment that shaped so much of the, the late 20th century and early 21st century. Um, and there was also you know, modern sanitation and proper toilets and things like that. So uh, mm -hmm. none, of the, uh, none of the horrors of so much of history. So that would be a, a very important moment for you to witness. Yeah. Um, we've had some more questions during that little glitch. Um, Yasin says, any new research and publications in the works? Um, it's, it's very sad. You can just uh, say yes. <laughs> you don't have to tell us what they are. It's, it's really sad. A lot, of what I, a lot of what I do now is really exciting and has a lot to do with... Uh, um, with the way I earn my living by helping people make strategy. But one of the things that is bubbling away in the background is a book about um, the, uh, the Bible as a military manual and the way that we can use it to understand how people thought anciently mm -hmm. and, uh, and how they thought about war wow. and, and how it shapes the way we think about war. That sounds really, really interesting. Um... Anouk says, a favorite HEMA moment. What's your favorite HEMA moment? Um, gosh, that's an interesting one. Well, it was, it was meeting Anouk, of course. Of course uh, it was. <laughs> uh, who has enlightened my... Um, my favorite HEMA moment was at the advanced age, I guess I was about, I was, I was just 48, 49 years old. Maybe I was 50 already when I um, <clears throat> uh, went to a tournament and showed myself that I could focus on fencing, focus on the fight, get my head into the game and, and actually win fights and, get, and win a medal. Mm -hmm. And that in spite of my age, my comparatively short time in the hobby at the time, fact that I was fit, not terribly physically fit at the time, that I could use focus and, um, and, and a bit of skill to actually win a fight. And that meant a great deal to me. That's, a, that's an amazing power um, to be able to harness and knowing that you can tune into that at will 
or hopefully recreate that uh, uh, another uh, event or tournament or or fencing situation. That's a really satisfying. Mm. That's gonna be a really satisfying moment. Saying I knowing just knowing that you can accomplish something like that is really really important on a personal level. Uh, mm. The Glamorgan. Sorry. I was fighting you at the time as well. Oh, was so. it me? Oh. <laughs> um, talking, sorry, this is from the Glamorgan School of Arms. Talking about learning, especially neurodiversity, what's your thoughts on how historical fencing rewires the mind? What should be a long question made very short? One of the things, it's a fascinating question, and I'm going to think about it a great deal um, when I'm not on the spot, and uh, and I will form opinions. Um, however, it is very important to note that some of the best fencers I encounter, like some of the best historians, are neuroatypical. And I think that neurotypicality appears not to convey much advantage in fencing, and that people who are autistic, people who are um, uh, uh, ADHD, um, are capable of bringing different neuroatypical patterns to, to the study of, of fencing. Mm -hmm. And, um, but that's not the question. The question is how, do, how does fencing itself rewire the mind? Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what I think is important. Fencing both favors and disfavors heuristics in different ways. Um, if you watch the same fencer fight, a very good fencer even, fight many bouts in a tournament, you will see that they often begin each fight in one of two or three ways. And as they fight, they respond to their opponents, often in a very few ways, two or three ways. And they fall back, <clears throat> fall back is the wrong word. They exploit different heuristics, they, um, different uh, learned instant responses in the case of, of fencing. Mm. as a way to improve their speed, improve their responsiveness, and, and improve their ability to win a fight. Um, but at the same time, if you go into a fight and you do the same thing over and over again, your opponent, or somebody who's been observing you, will be able to go in and, uh, and take advantage of that and defeat you by understanding your heuristics. Mm -hmm. So what fencing trains us to do is to simultaneously um, apply our heuristics, but also it forces us to think outside our heuristics to seek advantage. And a good fencer, I would suggest, mm -hmm. combines um, training, drills and skills, heuristics with the ability to think outside that um, that world simultaneously and seek advantage. And I think that shapes the mind. I think that if you, if you fence that way, you also problem solve that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it has to be. I mean, I don't think you can be that intensely focused, uh, adrenalized and um, um, invested in a situation and not be affected by it outside of that situation it has to leave a an, a mark on your on your thought processes afterwards i think mm. um thierry the sword guy i come from a broadsword background and i fence rapier improperly and proudly i like to use a lot of the edge edge lord now saviolo teaches war rapier and there's not much of is there potentially a missing Sorry, there isn't much. There isn't much overlap with only a century difference with broad and backsword. Is there potentially a gap that can be filled with cutty rapier? So he's talking about between uh, thrusty rapier, back broad and backsword, and something in between. So, if you if you examine somebody like George Silver, who was contemporary of Saviolo's, um, who was very interested in making a living as a fencing master um, in the same neighborhood as, as Saviolo. Um, silver gives us a really different way of using a sword, as I'm sure you know, 
and is very keen on making the point that all of those Italian fencing masters are absolutely useless in the face of a, of a stout English yeoman carrying a stout English sword no more than a yard long. And what um, Silver, I think, is doing is Silver is observing the transition from what in English-speaking Hama we call um, a side sword to a rapier. He's observing people start to fence with longer swords and start to use them far less for cutting. Mm -hmm. And and make no mistake, if you fight, I mean, I fight with a uh, 115 centimeter um, blade. If you fight with a 115 centimeter blade, unless you've got you know a, a wrist like a thigh, you can't turn it and cut with it with anywhere near the kind of speed that you can you can thrust with it. And all of those little mathematical problems that, that uh, people like Degrassi and, and others talk about are very straightforward. Um, thrusting is faster than cutting, mm -hmm. but can being a cutty person with a rapier, um, as it were, square that circle, can it address the fact that your sword has got a blade, has got an edge as well as a, as a point? Of course, because before and during Silver's lifetime, before and during Degrassi's lifetime, people are cutting an awful lot. Why does Degrassi tell you not to cut? Because lots of people cut. <laughs> yeah. People had read their Manciolino or studied with Manciolino or other um, you know, masters of what we would now call the side sword and learned to cut because cutting is in many ways a natural thing to do with a sword. In many ways, cutting is something which uses a, a set of muscle groups that are far more readily developed. There are a lot of good reasons to cut. Mm. And for years and years, people did so. And um, people draw a distinction now, just as we draw a distinction between a rapier and a side sword, people try to draw a distinction now between a military rapier and, and uh, a so-called civilian rapier. And civilian, it doesn't mean a thing. Civilian is not a meaningful term uh, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. A civilian meant a, somebody who practiced civil law, not, did not mean a, a non-combatant. So, um, I mean, anyone could be called up uh, to fight, so... Indeed. Yeah. And in war, no one was spared. Yeah. Uh, you know, when, when you sack the city, you, you don't say, oh, no, we'll leave them alone. They're civilians. You, you, yes. You kill the lot. So um, we draw these distinctions around rapier and around side sword or a military rapier or a non-military rapier at our peril. Um, people in the Renaissance didn't draw these distinctions. And um, although fencing masters told you to thrust more and cut less, and might have uh, suggested that you, you buy yourself a long, thin rapier to thrust more and cut less, um, that doesn't mean that um, somebody using that very same sword in war would have used it uh, the same way or used it differently. Uh, so we have to be aware of those distinctions. Important distinction. Um... And cut all you like. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with cutting. I mean, it's it's a very instinctual thing to do. Hmm. Um, we have another question. Ah, Anouk, favorite historical movie, historically accurate or not? Gosh, um, favorite historical movie. There is only one answer I can give to that, and that is hands down, The Lion in Winter. Oh, Peter O'Toole. And Catherine, Peter O'Toole. Uh, because it's beautifully written, beautifully executed, beautifully acted. And uh, if I have to name a favourite, there it is. Okay, so what period is that? Uh, the, the Lion in Winter, and that's Eleven, set when? 1183. Christmas 1183. And of course, okay. we know that because when Prince John says, Mother, he has a knife, her answer is, of course he has a knife. We all have knives. No, <laughs> of course he has a knife. He always has a knife. We all have knives. It's uh. 1183 and we're <laughs> barbarians. <laughs> Love it. Um, aw. Right. Ellie agrees with me and says best film ever. <laughs> Ellie is a woman of taste and discretion. <laughs> Gosh, you caught up with me. Uh, 
There's another question, unless we've already had this one. You can ask something again. Oh, Chris, uh, Chris, New Hampshire, USA, at 50 years old and male, would this help with adult ADHD? You're great. Uh, so I, I'm assuming he means learning HEMA would help. Would uh, um, one of the things him. that, I mean, I, I suffer from ADD, not ADD, mm -hmm. but um, mm -hmm. I suffer from ADD and uh, I don't medicate for it. And one of the things that I find really useful about fencing is that it forces me to focus for discrete periods of time on an interactive system, which is um, engaging with an opponent. So for me, it really works. Um, mm -hmm. not my doctorate's in history. Uh, I'm not a psychologist, I'm not an educational psychologist. I can't speak to um, anyone else's experience in this way, but I think it is worth going into a sport that, uh, uh, that values and rewards maintaining a certain kind of focus. And mm -hmm. people with, AD, with, with ADD and similar disorders um, often can adopt and move through different kinds of focus for limited periods of time. And fencing is great for that. Mm. I think there's a kind of a myth <laughs> that um, people with ADD and ADHD cannot focus. Mm. But it, it, what is it? it uh, is that she, uh, these these people can have an extremely like more focus than um, an holistic person, just a, a you know a neurotypical person, mm. um, which I think is um, you know as you say it highlights the strengths of people who aren't typically neurotypically wired, mm. um, and in order to do fencing well, you have to. It sounds it sounds quite cliche, but you have to clear your mind. You can't do it mm. unless you have that hyper hyper focus. You, it's um it's why I like to do. I always advocate a lot of flow drill in my classes, and when I'm on my own, I will. That's what I'll do when I'm in my garden. I'll just do flow drill because it's a form of meditation for me. It's a way of just getting rid of everything other than what I'm doing, and the activity itself becomes the reward it's not you know things creeping into my my attention my mind at the, at the edges are either driven out by the fact that I'm enjoying this activity more than thinking about that other stuff mm -hmm. or I have to actively try and keep those things away uh, in order to then be able to focus on the thing that I'm doing so I cannot perfectly understand I, I mean I, I, I possibly am uh, ADHD or ADD I'm not diagnosed but having a child who is diagnosed ADHD I, I perfectly understand that um, um, people with ADHD can easily have you know the TV on the radio on and a book and be able to focus on all of those things mm. and other times it's a case of I just want to do this one single activity repeatedly over and over again until I'm really really good at it. Let me ask you a question Fran when you're sure. fencing opponent where is if, if you could describe the point of focus that your mind your eyes your blade are focused on what how would you describe that point um um that's a great question uh when i started fencing um i had a real i think most people have a, a trouble working out you know do i focus on my boat my opponent do i focus on their hand do i focus on the tip of their sword do I focus mm. on the sword? You know, which of these things is important? I mean, they're all important. Um, and, I, and I asked Caroline Stewart, who was my teacher mm. at the time, and I said, what do I, what do I, which of those things is it? Which of these things I focus on? And she said, yeah, you have to have a fuzzy focus. And kind of a bit like, you know, those um, things they used to put in newspapers about 20 years ago called the, the, the third eye photographs. Mm. I, I, those those pictures that some people were like, oh yeah, I can see it's a bird or whatever. And I couldn't see them, <laughs> but apparently it's just you have to let your eyes go slightly out of focus in order to take in the whole picture. And for me, that works. I mean, I generally, you know, I I struggle with the fact that I'm a lot shorter than all of my opponents, every single one, with the exception of Abby. Um, 
And <laughs> so I'm always very aware of um, the fact that they can reach me when I can't reach them. So measure is very, very important. But there's also the fact that they can move a lot quicker than I can because their limbs are longer and all the rest of it. So when I am watching an opponent, a good one to think of is Luke, who, who trains with us. And I just focus on their torso. And I just, I just look at how far away their torso is. Um, and I think, is, it, is, is that t target near enough for me to hit or not? Is it going to move forward? Is it going to move back? Um, it's just the torso. So um, it's a kind of fuzzy focus with the torso, I would say, as the kind of foc focus uh, of uh, this weird one. It's sort of like everything kind of radiates out from there. And, which, you know, this, this, this torso moving forward and back. See, and, and I think that that description of, of having a um, simultaneously focused and unfocused view that you're holding um, a construct in your mind of your opponent's torso and the almost, you know, the, the, you are allowing your intuition to solve mm. all of the problems attached to that is something mm. which I think um, certain kinds of neuroatypicality really attaches to. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah, so you've got like a, a thing that you're focused on and everything in the periphery is just resolving itself or you are resolving it, but you've only got the one thing on your mind. That kind mm. of makes sense. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Sebastian says, I lose to everyone shorter than me. I'm sorry, Sebastian. I want to fight you now. Uh, <laughs> death from below. Yeah. Uh, ADHD is great for humor. Try to keep up. Oh, neurologically unchallenged people. Um, <laughs> I have fought fleas high on energy drink and found them easier opponents than Fran having fun while fencing. Well, I'll, I'll take that as a compliment. Um, have we got any more questions for Lynette? Now is the time to ask. By the way, everyone, um, if you want to watch this, I'm going to, it, it will be available on the page for the next 24 hours. Um, and if Lynette is happy, I will record, I will save the recording and stick it on YouTube. So if anyone wants to listen to our chat, they're welcome to, because uh, our, the first um, interview with Kimmy went very well. Uh, and some people were disappointed because they didn't get to to watch it, and it's it's now disappeared. And I'm I'm, I'm sorry because I haven't saved it. But uh, I think in the future I will save these and upload them. Um, advice for beginners. This is from Jana in the states. What's your advice for beginners? I know what mine is, but I'll ask you. Yeah, my advice for so I I. I train with Fran at School of the Sword. We're a very um, structured um, fencing school. <clears throat> we have tremendous attention to historical detail, historical forms, and we also have a balanced amount of sparring. Um, I do a lot of my tournament fighting in the SCA, and SCA fencing tends to be much less structured in its training and much less structured in its in its tournaments. And the two are not quite different extremes, but they're <clears throat> they're different approaches to the balance between structured drilling, academic fencing, and having a good old time going out and sticking the pointy end into your opponent. So my advice I miss that so much. Go on. Well yeah. <laughs> We've got one minute left. So my advice is to uh, seek that kind of balance, uh, mm -hmm. your balance between uh, structured drilling, what you need to do to get your body and your mind into the place where you are an excellent fencer, mm. if you're the best fencer that you can be, but make sure that you have enough fun, enough horsing around, <clears throat> enough sparring, enough free play, that you you don't lose the delight in fencing. And get enjoy that and keep that to light. Mm -hmm. My advice is show up. <laughs> you just have to keep going. Uh, people will repeatedly apologize for being a beginner. Don't apologize for being a beginner. You aren't expected to know what you're doing. That's why you're here. Uh, just keep going and build up that baseline of skills. And one day you will look behind and you'll see how far you've come. 
and we have 15 seconds left. So I will say thank you very much, Lynette. It was lovely to see you. Uh, I miss you and all of the SOTS people. And I can't wait to train with you again and um, take care. I look forward to it. Look after you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. Go to at Swordwomen on Instagram to see upcoming interviews or visit bythesword.net for information about our event or look for our Facebook page, By the Sword.